0: Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. The three stories that we have for you today are some of my favorites, and I hope that you enjoy them. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. My grandfather worshipped a strange god. Written by Kikito Lin. My grandfather was born in 1912 and passed back in 2011. We weren't especially close, but I had been there to help clean out his estate. I got a whole bunch of stuff, old furniture and family photos mostly. But I also ended up with a couple of miscellaneous boxes of memories. Admittedly, I wasn't interested in looking through them. I put them in the attic and forgot about them until last week. When my daughter was asking about him, we opened the boxes together and an old copper dropped from one of the boxes and rolled across the floor. It was a strange coin with a crisscross symbol on both sides. My daughter was fascinated, but as I looked in the box, I found a stack of papers. It was a memoir written in my grandfather's handwriting and detailed a recount of some of his early days working on a whaling vessel. I didn't even know that he worked on a ship ever, considering how the man refused to go anywhere near the ocean. He wouldn't even come to the beach with us, stating instead that the gods of old ruled the sea, and that we should not go near it. He even had a little shrine, which I dutifully threw out, Dedicated to a god I wasn't familiar with. Because of this, I decided it was better that I read through it all first before letting my daughter read the letters. This is what they said. It wasn't all in English, but I have translated what I could. The day begins before the sun has risen down at the docks. It's bitterly cold. Ice coats, the frozen wood, and the damp smell of sea salt rolls off the early morning mist. Men moved sluggishly to beat the ice off of riggings and prepare to set sail. It was my first day. I was a greenhand, a mess boy, hired by Captain Johann Eid from a newspaper advertisement. I was only seventeen at the time, but I lied and said that I was twenty. My teeth chattered and my breath steamed in the air as I waited. You, Timothy, Timothy Horn. A tall, gruff-looking man approached me. His hair was light brown and his beard was full orange. Yes, sir, I'm waiting for Captain Ede. While you're looking at him, didn't expect you to be quite so skinny, boy. I laughed nervously. That's what everybody tells me. He glared down at me for a long moment, folding his arms before asking. You ain't never been on a ship either, have you? My dad took me fishing once or twice. Good enough. Follow me. He turned, expecting me to follow, and I hurried after him. The sun was beginning to rise by now, and the oil lamps were burning low. The ship was a decent size and well maintained, with a metal hull and wooden deck. A harpoon gun was mounted on the front, and the thick sail ropes looked pristine. We were a whaling vessel one of the last ones at the time in the north. Most other whalers had went south toward the Antarctic, but Captain Eade insisted on remaining north, which was quite fortunate for me, or I wouldn't have gotten the job and I needed it. My father had passed away the year before and we were struggling with my five siblings. I was the oldest so it made sense that I would be the one to work, and whaling was a respected job back then. Of course, my mother wasn't happy with it after hearing old wives' tales of husbands being lost at sea. She was worried she would lose me as well, and I can't say that I wasn't nervous. I had heard stories myself of whales capsizing small boats, and I was glad to see the ship that I was going to be on was bigger than I thought. Captain E had toured me around. The below area is where we sleep and eat. If a big wave hits you, hold on to something tight, and if you're going to be sick, do it over the side. Yes, sir. This is first and second mate, David and Roger Finn. If you have any hassles, you talk to them. He introduced me to two light-haired men who were obviously brothers. Good to meet you. David shook my hand. Try not to fall overboard, eh? Roger laughed, ruffling my hair. Yeah, I'll try. I agreed awkwardly. They were friendly enough, I guessed. Simon over here is our gunner and Talvert is our meat cutter, Ede explained, gesturing to two other men who waved back as they worked on the riggings. You'll be responsible for spotting whales, keeping everything clean and helping out around, all right? Yes, sir. I agreed without hesitation. Good. We set sail in one hour. So if there's anything else you need, I suggest you arrange it before then. Captain Eat had, had me accompany David to get rations for the ship and it was as I was paying for three sacks of potatoes that I fumbled with the coins. My fingers were numb from the cold air and several coins spilled in all directions. One in particular landed with a clatter on the frozen boards and rolled quite some distance coming to an abrupt stop under the boot of a man that I didn't know. He was the younger of two tall men, both with dark hair and striking blue eyes. He couldn't have been more than early twenties in age, while his companion could have been mid-thirties with a few graying strands in his hair. They looked too alike to not be related, and as the younger one knelt to pick up the coin, he spoke. Does it change your mind? Why should it? The two men spoke in a language that I didn't know with an accent that I could not place, and I realized with dread which coin had rolled to them. It was an old Norse coin my mother had given me. She said it was supposed to guide Viking sailors and that I should keep it with me as a prayer to Nord, the god of safe seafaring and fishing. I didn't believe in anything like that but I kept it with me to humor her. Sorry about that, cold fingers. I spoke up hoping that would be enough to prompt them to hand it back to me. For a moment they were startled as if they didn't expect to see me there or hadn't expected me to speak to them. However, as they recovered, the elder one smiled broadly, slamming a big hand on his companion's shoulder, earning him a rueful sideways glare. Oh, it's alright, my son here is just as lazy. I mean clumsy, he drops many things. He addressed me into heavily accented English before speaking to his son. Hand the coin back. In response, the younger man allowed the coin to drop from his fingers. By misfortune, it happened to land between a crack in the boards and dropped into the water below with a soft splash. My mistake, I dropped many things. Mercury responded casually. His English was accented, but unmistakably American, and it seemed to me like he was mocking his father's accent in his choice of words. Both I and the older man stared after the coin for a long moment in disbelief, before I found my voice again. That's bad luck, ain't it? I laughed to break the tension. It in no way felt like a mistake, and my mother wouldn't like to know that it was lost forever. Neither spoke, and an uncomfortable silence passed before the older one pulled a silver coin from his pocket. As I said, my son is clumsy. Take this for your troubles. He offered, but I waved my hand dismissively. No, it's alright. It was just an old copper coin. Can't even spend it here, I assured. He looked at me with sympathy, but it was as he was about to insist that David recalled my attention. "'Boy, did you get them spuds?' "'Yeah, coming,' I shouted over my shoulder. I had only turned away for a moment, but when I looked back, both of the blue-eyed men were gone. The air seemed colder where they had been, and I shivered involuntarily. I hadn't heard them step away, and I couldn't see them anywhere nearby. It was as if they had simply vanished in the mist.' By the time David and I returned to the ship, the captain was arguing with the harbormaster. I told you, you can't set sail with a crew of only five men. What do you want? I hired another man. Look, there he is right now. Timothy. The man turned to look me up and down. That's hardly a man. He exclaimed and the captain threw his arms up. He is too. Well, it don't matter, does it? You need at least eight men to manage a ship this size. Oh, I've done it before. So, you're admitting to other violations now. The captain paused. No, he answered carefully. Right then, when you have the appropriate number of crew members. If you're in need of more crew members, my son and I are looking for work. It was one of the men that I had met earlier that spoke up and Captain Ede jumped at the opportunity. He looked them over once before, agreeing readily. You're hired, and I take it that means you got no more problems here. He addressed the harbormaster, who looked suitably irritated. I guess not. Good day to you, then. Yeah, alright, but don't you be sending me out any distress signals later. I won't answer them, he warned. Limey old bugger. Captain Eed muttered, I must have looked more shocked than I thought because David leaned over to him for me. Other brothers, you don't need to worry about it, he assured. Right. Personally, I couldn't see the resemblance. As the harbor master left Eed, he approached his new crew members. Captain Ede, glad to have you with us. He offered out his hand. Even dear, even for short and this is my son mercury the older of the two introduced them shaking the captain's hand firmly in doing so i would have guessed they were brothers but father and son the man didn't look old enough for his son to be that grown is that mercury like the metal or the poison even laughed some days it's hard to say you got any experience on chips certainly do My son and I have sailed every coast. Splendid, welcome aboard. We set sail not long after that. The open ocean was vast. Bright sunlight glinted off the deep blue surface and seabirds floated lazily on the breeze above. It was shaping up to be a fair day with calm seas and no clouds in sight. The rest of the crew chatted idly among themselves. Even's distinct accent was notable as he spoke jovially. However, I stayed back a bit. They were all smoking cigars, but my mother had taught me not to. She said it was a disgusting habit, and if I'm honest, I just didn't know what I was supposed to do. They were all friendly enough, but I had nothing to share. I wasn't old enough for a wife or kids, and I didn't want them to figure that much out. Instead, I stood toward the stern of the boat, watching the bow slice through the waves. Eventually, it was Mercury who came to stand beside me. His eyes were remarkably blue, almost a match to the ocean, and his lashes were long enough that they cast a shadow across his cheeks. He didn't say anything, and I wilted in the awkward silence. So is even really your dad? I asked awkwardly. Unfortunately, he hardly looks older than you. Oh, he's older than he looks. I'm the youngest of his children. He must have started young, I laughed, trying to muster the bravo of the 20-year-old that I was supposed to be. I suppose you could say that, he agreed. Have you got any kids? I have a son. Where is he? Mercury smiled slightly. Home why didn't you bring him with you Uh, the boy is crippled it's a weakness that makes travel difficult oh i felt bad for asking the conversation died shortly thereafter so i was grateful when the captain sent me up to the barrel to watch for whales i had never been a particular fan of heights and i clung to each rung desperately on the way up each time the ship rolled to the side i held on for dear life and when it eventually lulled back to the other side, I climbed as quickly as I could. It was a relief to reach the barrel and I scrambled into it gratefully. Getting back down was going to be much worse. Hours passed before I spotted the first whale. I shouted back down and pointed excitedly. I had no idea if they could hear me. However, as our trajectory changed and steam billed from the engine room the chase was on... A buzz filled the air as we closed the distance between us and the mammal. When we were near enough to see it from the deck, I climbed down to join the rest of the crew, and I was there when the gunner, Simon, released the explosive-tipped harpoon. It hit with a wet crack, and to my surprise, the animal let out a soft sound of pain. It was a cry really, and I winced. I wasn't prepared for that. The rope pulled taut as the whale tried to escape, and Captain Ede gave the orders for Mercury and died to reel it in. We took a hold of the rope and heaved, or rather he did. I'm not sure that it did anything as Mercury dragged the wounded creature back to the ship, nearly single-handedly. It writhed in the water beside the boat. Red stained the ocean and when it exhaled, it expelled a sad spray of foaming blood into the water. I hadn't really seen anything die before, and I couldn't help but feel sick. I don't know how Mercury could stand it. He didn't seem to care at all. The "'Pump it with air, boy,' Captain Eade ordered, and I looked up at him with wide eyes as he handed me what was essentially a giant hypodermic needle. "'What? It's still alive?' I murmured, I could feel myself trembling. It'll die soon enough, best not to waste time. I heard what he was saying, but as I glanced back over the edge of the railing, the whale and I made eye contact. It looked helpless and desperate, like it didn't understand what was happening and I couldn't do it. Moreover, I didn't understand how anybody else could. Here, let me... It was even who solemnly took the air pump for me, and I allowed it without protest. He was perhaps the only person who looked uncomfortable. Without a word, he leaned over the side dangerously and placed a hand on the whale. It's alright. Rest now. He spoke softly to the animal and it gradually became still. And then he plunged the air pump into it with force and I became closely acquainted with the deck. When I came back to, we were ashore. I stopped at the whaling station, and I was laying on a plain flat bed in the below quarters. My mouth was dry and my head hurt as I sat up. Aye, London Bridge is up. It was David who grinned back at me as I reoriented myself. What? Oh, you earned yourself the nickname London Bridge since you fell down. There's a popular nursery rhyme about the London Bridge falling down and I understood that was going to be my new title probably forever. Right, what happened again? You fainted and hit your head on the banister on your way down. Knocked yourself right out. Where is everybody else? At the whaling station, they left me behind to look after you. He stood to go and I reluctantly followed him out. The station was a chain of several stone buildings with metal roofing. The ground was frozen and patches of snow sat melting slowly over bright green grasses. There were other boats docked in the harbor, but as far as I could see, no other people were around. Our boat was docked beside a long blood-soaked ramp, and I made the mistake of looking over to see even Mercury and Halvard, stripping slices of blubber from the whale. They were using long sticks with blades on the end to cut into the thing before sending the cuts down a small chute off to the side and I was sick on the spot. To avoid being anywhere near the whale, well, I drifted away to look around the rest of the station. It was quiet and cold and surprisingly empty, I thought. I had expected that maybe the other crews were inside or all gathered somewhere, but the area was as good as a ghost town. It was odd only because it looked like there had been people around recently. Drinks had been left out to freeze in the weather, and used tools sat out on benches as it placed down for only a moment. Open doors swayed gently, and the whole station groaned in the breeze. The commotion of seabirds squabbling further ahead drew my attention, and as I entered a new area the smell of rotting whale permeated the air. I gagged involuntarily as I rounded the corner, some other crew had left an entire whale carcass on the docking ramp and it was semi-frozen, bloated, and festering. As I watched the seabirds suddenly fell silent and all at once took off into the air in a rush of feathers, they abandoned their feasts without a moment's hesitation and my blood turned to ice as I realized the carcass was moving. The blubber wobbled as the entire whale jolted as if being tugged. My heart beat hard and my skin prickled. For a moment I thought that I was delusional, the animal was massive. Nothing could move it like that. But then it happened again. The whale shuddered and then began to slide back down the ramp toward the water. Flesh that had frozen to the dock tore away and in moments the entire thing had slipped back into the ocean leaving only a trail of visceral remains in its wake. I didn't waste a single moment. I ran back to my crew as if my feet had wings all on their own. Something, something just pulled a whale back into the water. I shouted breathlessly as I reached the captain. What are you talking about, boy? The whale is right here. He responded appropriately confused. Not this one, the other one. I pointed vaguely in the direction that I had come, and the others moved skeptically to investigate. When we reached the area, it was just as I had left it. Only the birds had returned to pick at the stuck flesh that remained. It looked remarkably normal, and there wasn't any other trace left as evidence. I swear I ain't lying. It is a bit odd that no one else is here, David agreed as the captain stared along and hard out across the ocean. Well, there's nothing here now. Captain Ed spoke at last. So, let's not get ourselves all worked up. As we spoke, it was Mercury who moved past us to stand at the edge of the ramp. Mercury, be careful, even warned him. Oh, your concern is touching, he responded dryly, reaching down to pick something from the edge of the dock. From a distance, it looked like he had picked up a giant abalone shell. It was bigger than his hand, and I expected that he might bring the unusual find over. However, after a tense moment, he instead tossed it into the water before returning to us. What did you find? Evan asked curiously. He spoke in a different language, as he responded calmly with a smile. That was the first time that I had seen him smile, and it was unsettling. His teeth were unnaturally perfect and the canines were pointed. Only rich people had teeth like that. What did he say? I asked, hesitant. Just a chunk of ice. Mercury answered casually. That was a relief. We spent the night at the station. The wind howling against the tin roofing and the bitter cold kept me awake for the better part of the night. As I drifted between the edge of sleep and wakefulness, I thought that I heard voices carrying on that breeze, not that I could make out what they were saying. One morning came, it wasn't a minute too soon, and I was one of the first ones up. Right away, I began preparing to set sail, shoveling the snowfall from the night off the deck and beating ice off the riggings. It wasn't long before Mercury joined me. He was strong and worked at least twice as fast as I did while hardly breaking a sweat. He was eager to leave as well, I thought. Snow settled in his hair and the silver ring on his thumb caught my attention because I thought it was a bad choice to wear one. Most of the other men stowed even their wedding bands for fear of losing them or having the skin ripped from their fingers if they got it caught on anything. However, I chose not to ask about it. Instead, I tried to make small talk. How'd you sleep last night? I didn't, he answered without looking over. Uh, Did the wind keep you up all night? Yeah, me too. How old did you say you were again? He asked abruptly. Twenty, I lied quickly. You talk too much for a twenty-year-old. He could have just said that he didn't want to talk and that would have been fine. Fortunately, I wasn't allowed the chance to respond before the rest of our crew had arrived. It looks like the mess boys have got us all ready to go. Simon laughed as he stepped onto the newly shoveled deck. Mercury did most of it, I admitted reluctantly as he patted me on the back. You were here before me, Mercury stated calmly as everyone boarded. We had gotten everything ready, and all that was left to do was to have breakfast and set off, which I was only too eager to do. So when I overheard Even speaking with the captain, I wasn't exactly pleased. I think we should stay at the station for today. Looks like bad weather on the horizon. Nonsense, there's not a cloud in sight, Captain Eid countered. Regardless, the sea is upset, Even tried. I see misfortune for us if we sail today. Eade paused for a moment as if considering when Mercury spoke up. Don't let my father's superstitions get to you. Not a lot of money left in whales these days. Have to catch a few to make it worthwhile. And I saw whale spouts earlier this morning. There's plenty out there. Well, can't miss an opportunity like that, can I? Captain Eade amused. If it looks like bad weather, we'll turn back, trust me. I've been on the seas longer than anyone. He even looked distinctly displeased as he glared over to his son. Why do you insist on doing this? The same reason I do anything, because it's going to be fun. Mercury answered in English and I couldn't help but wonder what his father had said. When we set sail, the weather seemed as fair as it was yesterday, and true to what Mercury said, there were a great number of whales about. We must have killed eight or so before midday, leaving a trail of floating carcasses stuck with flags in our wake. By the time that we saw the first cloud in the sky, we had made a good haul, although it was even that seemed increasingly nervous as the day drew on. We should turn back now, he reiterated. Nonsense, the day is still young. Captain Eade assured him, but the man took hold of his arm. "'I said we should turn back now,' he repeated firmly. It was no longer a request. It was an order and the authority was astonishing. It was only Mercury who didn't seem surprised, and Eade faltered. "'I'm the captain of this ship. "'You won't be if you don't turn back. "'Are you threatening me?' Eid accused with narrowed eyes. No, the answer came reluctantly. Then unhand me. Even slowly released his grip on the captain. This is a bad idea. You don't know what's in these waters. Nonsense, I've sailed longer than you have. Doubtful, he murmured to himself as Eid moved away. Hours passed from then and we spotted no more whales. Simon relieved me from the barrel and I returned to the deck to play cards with E. David, Roger, and Mercury. Halvard left the group to check the engine, and even simply refused to participate. As we each stared at our cards in silence, it was only the gentle slosh of waves against the hull that disturbed the quiet. The temperature dropped as the sun fell toward the horizon and a heavy mist rolled in across the ocean. Ivan offered to take the helm, claiming that he was good at navigating through misty conditions. He steered us away from near invisible chunks of floating ice. How he could even see them was beyond me, but I suspect he took the liberty to turn the ship around in doing so. Eventually, we passed by the whales that we had flagged earlier, It was around that time that the engine cut out Momentum stopped at once and the boat drifted with the waves dead in the water Halvard, what's going on? He had called to us as he got up to investigate However, even and his son shared a brief glance before Mercury smiled It wasn't friendly It was bemused and he got up to look over the edge of the railing Don't do anything hasty, his father warned And do you remember how difficult it is to swim ashore in frigid waters, Father? Mercurius. Just a question. His eyes were unmistakably following movement in the water, and I reluctantly came to stand beside him to see what it was. Below the ocean was dark and calm. Small waves were crested with white sea foam, and the visibility was not more than a few meters out with the heavy fog. In the near distance, a wave broke with an unusual slosh, and the mist swirled unnaturally around movement at the surface. Something's out there, I murmured, mostly to myself. If you believe in the gods of old, you'd better get on your hands and knees and pray. Maybe I'll choose to save you. I hesitated, was he making a joke? I wasn't allowed the chance to answer before something nudged the boat causing it to rock forward violently and both Mercury and I very nearly fell overboard. What the heck was that? David demanded, and he scrambled back to his feet. A whale? Roger suggested anxiously. Ain't no whale big enough to do that. Simon shouted down at us from the barrel while pointing to the port side. What was that? David called back only to receive a secondary inaudible answer. What? He shouted louder, frustrated. He's saying that there's something below us. Mercury commented sedately. As he spoke, I was watching the water. A coil of massive dark scales broke the surface beside the hull, and my legs turned to jello. I stumbled, falling back as I tried to process what I had seen. Whatever it was, it was no whale. The ocean churned as the coils of its body writhed beneath the surface before it gradually rose up to tower over our vessel. It exhaled a spray of seawater and its mass displaced the mist. The creature was like to a snake with long flat jaws fitted with four rows of backward curved fangs top and bottom. Long tassels hung from its lower jaw and webbed fins protruded from either side of its face. Its tail was broad and flat, while the sail fin extended down the length of its spine. Slowly, its jaw opened as if it were smelling the air through its mouth, and then it hissed low in its throat. The sound vibrated as a deep rattle through my ribcage. It was undoubtedly a warning. Don't move. It'll go for the whale carcass, not us. Even instructed tensely. He didn't need to tell me. I was frozen to the spot, trembling with every heartbeat, as adrenaline pulsed violently through my veins. I couldn't move even if I wanted to. The ship rocked to the side away from the serpent as the water writhed, and I slipped across the deck, crashing into the mast as I realized Even wasn't talking to me. Rather, he was talking to his son, who stood with one hand holding the railing to keep from falling as the ship rolled. "'You're a coward, father,' he replied spitefully. "'You can't fight that. Watch me.' As he spoke, Mercury brought the ring on his thumb upward and had a hidden spike extended from the side, and he cut the artery of his own throat without hesitation. Blood spurted from the wound at an alarming rate, staining the deck and dripping into the ocean. I had never seen somebody do that to themselves before. The beast before us must have smelt the blood, for its eyes contracted to narrow slits and its demeanor changed from cautious to enraged, as Mercury smiled. He stumbled with the blood loss, then his grip on the railing tightened. An inky darkness leaked from the wound on his neck, it moved like weighted smoke and blackened lines snaked upward over his face from the underside of his jaw when the transformation was complete his eyes glowed unnatural blue his nails were black and dark lines followed the contour of his skin he was beautiful a god in human form mercury took a hold of one of the rigging cables and yanked it free of its securing breaking off the metal pole that had been attached to entirely He caught the falling piece of metal in one hand and without hesitation, launched it at the serpent like a javelin. It hit with surprising force, striking the creature just below the jawline and causing it to thrash wildly, sending a spray of ice water over us. Its tail connected with the ship as it disappeared beneath the waves, and the vessel rolled dangerously again. Simon fell from the barrel above overboard and David at the opposite railing with a sickening crack before his limp body tumbled over the edge. I tried to catch him as he fell past me but I missed and that will forever haunt me. The serpent resurfaced not moments later. Blood ran freely down its scales and it coiled tight before striking the place where Mercury stood. However, the man moved quickly and its jaw clamped over empty space. The metal bent and the wooden board splintered under the impact of its teeth. Its body coiled against the hull of the ship and a milky substance pumped from its fangs into the deck of our vessel. It was a venom so potent that it melted the wood-like acid. However, as it struggled to detach its fangs, realizing that it had missed its target, Mercury circled back. He had taken one of the tipped harpoons and plunged the weapon directly through the serpent's eye. A mass of black energy followed the impact, and the harpoon detonated with a contained explosion within the creature's skull. Only a small amount of fleshy debris sprayed outward through the open cavities of the bone, and the thing became largely still. Its body jerked involuntarily as it gradually slipped back into the water, but it was over. Mercury was by then breathing heavily and glared up at his father. "'You see?' he asked coldly. Even returned his son's glare with a hard expression, he looked somewhat disgusted. "'It was unnecessary. It wouldn't have attacked if you didn't first.' His son snorted. "'We're gods. It's our right to do as we please. "'You cost men their lives.' You're the one who insisted on this little trip. The tension between them was tight in the air. I thought it would help you see reason. Mercury didn't answer, and even sighed as his attention moved to where Captain Eade and Talivard were emerging from below. Both had heavy cuts and bruises, and Roger, who was across from me, holding tight to some riggings, didn't look any better. Clean up your mess, then. No witnesses. Even stated firmly, Not so concerned about their lives now, father. You ended their lives the moment you revealed what you are. His son snorted, What are gods without worshippers? When Even had mentioned costing lives, I had thought he was talking about Simon and David, but now that I understood, he was meaning all of us. You know the laws. Mercury ignored him, turning instead to face us. Do you hear that? My father would like to kill you all, but I will offer you mercy. Bow before me and I'll spare your lives. I didn't need convincing. I knew what they were just as they had known the coin I held was a blessing, and I shakily crawled to my hands and knees, daring not even to look up. However, it seemed I was the only one. Not even Roger, who had seen just much as I, moved to do as he was told. "'You'll kill us anyway. You're not gods. You're devils,' he hissed. "'Wrong choice.' It was Mercury's calm voice that answered and I trembled as his footsteps crossed the deck towards us. I scrunched my eyes closed. I knew the chances that he would keep his word were slim to none and I didn't want to see. Instead, I heard it as the rest of the crew were torn apart. Of course, I'm sure they tried to fight, but against something like the two of them, it was pointless. Heavy drops of remains landed on my clothing, and as all became quiet again, I knew that it was over. Mercury came to crouch before me, and I flinched when he tilted my chin up. Relax, Timothy, you've made the right choice. He spoke calmly, petting my hair as if I were an animal. I'll make sure you survive, so long as you worship me forever. I I will, I whispered weakly. Good. Mercurius, I meant it when I said no witnesses. Kill him. He even spoke up agitated. Now father, I've just promised my protection, I can't go back on my word so easily. Then I will do it. No. A tense moment of silence passed as the refusal settled between them. You would fight me over this human. Mercury stood as his father approached. Actually, i have been meaning to fight you for some time. Your ideals are disgraceful so I won't turn down the opportunity. I don't want to hurt you, you're my son. As if you could. I surpassed you long ago. You were just too busy playing house to realize it. He even took in a deep breath as if he regretted what he was about to do. However, Mercury moved faster. He took a piece of splintered wood coated in serpent venom and stabbed it directly into his father's chest, catching the man by surprise. This is for trying to kill my son. Have fun swimming back to shore, if you can. You're a monster. For whatever he had said, his son pushed him over the edge of the ship, and he disappeared into the dark water. Right. Let's get you out of the cold before you freeze to death. I hope Halivard fixed the engine before I killed him. Mercury smiled pleasantly, offering me a hand. By now, the strange markings on his skin had faded and he looked remarkably human again. If not for the blood as staining his clothes, The way back felt impossibly long and we didn't speak again. Instead he watched over me the same way a wolf watches a lamb. He chuckled each time that I flinched. Eventually we made it to the whaling station and that was where Mercury left me. Alone in the abandoned station. He sank the ship and walked out into the frozen tundra without saying a word more. I waited for three days before another crew had arrived. They were surprised to see me, and I told them that our ship had capsized in unusually turbulent seas. When I returned home, I was surprised to learn that a generous amount of money had arrived for me in the form of solid gold blocks. Sitting atop the pile, however, was a single copper coin. I don't think I'll be letting my daughter read these. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have heard me speak about HelloFresh before and there's a reason for it. I've been using HelloFresh for a while now and honestly, I love it. It's the perfect way to try new foods and at the same time, not break the budget. It also helps me elevate my cooking skill instead of always opting to order takeout instead. Just the other night, I had the chicken sausage and spinach ricotta ravioli and it was honestly really good. It took me about 15 or 20 minutes to prep and after that I was eating and enjoying my meal. This is definitely a recipe that I wouldn't have made on my own without HelloFresh. So, I'm happy to have tried it and I'll definitely be trying it again. HelloFresh takes the stress out of mealtime by delivering fresh ingredients and easy recipes right to your door. And I can pledge by it. Plus, with fall rolling around and the season changing, HelloFresh will be offering its new fall lineup of delicious dinners and more to choose from. So I'm pretty excited about that. And To get started for yourself, go to HelloFresh.com 50 50MrGreeves and use code 50MrCreeps for 50% off, plus 15% off for the next two months. That's HelloFresh.com slash 50MrCreeps and use code 50MrCreeps for 50% off, plus 15% off for the next two months. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. I'm a cop in a rundown coastal town. There is terror by the sea. Written by a Doomed Geek. I joined the police force to make a real difference and found being out on patrol in uniform frustrating. Most of the time, I was dealing with drunks, lousy drivers, and the victims of burglary who were never going to get any justice. So I was over the moon when I was accepted into a specialist unit, targeting serious crime. On my first night with the unit, I was assigned to carry out surveillance on a property used by a major gang. It was 3am. London was in the grip of a heat wave that felt like it would never end the unmarked car that i was in stank of the cheeseburger piled high with fried onions that my partner had just eaten this mingled with the smell of sweat and the cheap air freshener in the shape of a tree which hung inches from my face i had the window rolled down to try and get some relief but the air was still and stale i sighed this is not how i had imagined the sharp end of fighting crime would be But I had a job to do. The gang that we were targeting imported drugs and ran a network of dealers. They were scum. And I was going to do everything in my power to help bring them down. I focused back on the property. It was a gym on a busy street that was open 24 hours a day. It offered flexible memberships. According to the signage in the windows. And despite the late hour and the stifling heat... I could see a couple of people inside on treadmills. According to our intelligence, though, the gym was a front. In the property's basement, there was a secure space where pure batches of newly imported narcotics were stored and tested, before being moved on mixed and distributed. Sports bags full of the product could be carried in and out of the premises at all hours of the night and day, without raising any suspicions. The gang had dozens of properties like this all over London, hiding their activities in plain sight. We were there that night to photograph people entering and leaving the gym. Some would be innocent insomniacs there to exercise, others would be working for the gang. It was methodical work and I was fine with that because I knew it would lead to results. And here came a new possible lead. A man was approaching the gym carrying a sports bag. I started taking pictures. We were parked a safe distance from the gym, so I was using a long lens. It brought the man now entering the gym into sharp focus. He was 6'2", he looked lean and fit. The gang's attention to detail included all of their couriers looking like they actually used a gym. I continued taking pictures as the man disappeared inside. I kept an eye on the gym equipment that I could see through the window, but was surprised when he did not make an appearance. He would be down in the basement, I figured, either handing over or collecting a new badge. I lowered the camera and sat back in my seat. By my side, my partner lit a cigarette. Oh, are you serious? I hissed. If you don't like it, call the health police. He replied with a sneer on his face. My partner had been a detective for 15 years. He was supposed to be mentoring me. All he had done so far was wind me up. I started to count to 10 as my partner exhaled a new cloud of smoke. And then he said, I'm going for a coffee. You can hold the fort while I'm gone. He opened the door and just before he climbed out, he turned back and said, "Oh, try not to mess up, boy. I watched him walk away. I was furious and appalled. It was like this was all a game to him and I was a piece of dirt on the sole of his shoe. My mood did not improve as the night dragged on. When my partner finally reappeared hours later, I could smell alcohol on his breath. He settled back into his seat, yawned, and said, ''Home, Jeeves!'' And then he closed his eyes and moments later was snoring. I had said nothing over the radio to the team leader while I had been on my own, diligently recording the comings and goings at the gym butt. When we arrived back at the station to sign off at the end of the shift, I was so worked up that I couldn't stop myself. I knocked on the door of the detective in charge of the unit and asked if I could have a quiet word. He did not seem keen, but invited me to take a seat. I took a deep breath and told him what my partner had done. I said that I didn't want to make a formal complaint, but that I felt that his behavior was not acceptable. In my opinion, the detective simply nodded and thanked me. I left a feeling that I had done the right thing, but as I tried and failed to get some sleep ahead of my next night shift, I started to worry. There was an unwritten rule that you never spoke out against another officer. In 2023, that should not have been the case, but I had been a cop long enough to know that it was still true. By the time that I was heading back to the station, I felt sick to the core, Had I made a stupid mistake. As soon as I had entered the station, the answer started to become clearer. A couple of the other members of the unit who were heading out on assignment blanked me. They walked right past me without a word. Well, that's not strictly true. As the door swung closed behind them, one of them muttered an obscenity. It was clearly directed at me, but it would have been easy to deny, so I tried to shrug it off and carried on along the hallway. When I got to the office where the unit was based, half a dozen of my colleagues were there working on their laptops. When I had joined the unit, I had been welcomed warmly. There had been handshakes, offers to help with anything that I needed, and invites to drink down at the pub and local barbecues. Now it was like the temperature had been slammed down to 10 below zero. The others glanced up at me and then carried on working in silence. I hadn't noticed him at first, but my partner was there as well. He was standing by the water cooler. He did look me in the eye. The hatred in his gaze was clear. He walked towards me, and I tensed. I thought that he was going to strike me, but he just kept going. I took a couple of long breaths, nice and slow, trying to keep calm. And then I logged on to check my messages before I went to sign out the car for that night's surveillance. Only the first email that I saw was from the detective in charge of the unit telling me that I was on desk duty. In a way I was relieved that I wouldn't have to spend what would have been an agonizing night with my partner. But as I opened up the database that I had been ordered to update, I felt a strange mix of anger and despair at my situation. And things went steadily downhill after this. Night after night and week after week, I was kept chained to a desk doing drudge work. No one spoke to me. I was repeatedly criticized for the most petty things imaginable. I was also blamed for mistakes that other people had made. Away from work, I found it hard to sleep and I was on edge all the time. I knew the way that I was being treated was completely wrong and... I could have gone to a union rapper and made a direct complaint, but I didn't. Some people might say that I was weak, that I should have stood up for myself, but being bullied is an insidious process. It chips away at your self-belief bit by bit, reducing a person to something that even they hate. Eventually I tried transferring, but my applications were all turned down. I soon realized word of my actions had reached beyond the unit. In desperation, I decided that I had two choices, leave the police force or transfer away from London. I made my choice and a month or so later, in the gray light of a winter morning, I packed my belongings in my car and set off for the north of England. My new posting was in a coastal town. I would be back in uniform, back out on patrol. This felt like a backward step, but as the miles passed on the motorway, I told myself that I needed to be positive. I was still a police officer and this was the chance at a new start. One that I needed to grasp with both hands and make a success of. I stopped a couple of times along the way to fuel up the car and myself. By dusk, I was about an hour away from my destination. For this last leg, my navigation app told me that I needed to leave the main network, and I soon found myself heading along a narrow, unlit road through featureless countryside. There were no signs that I could see in the encroaching gloom, but that wasn't a problem until the bars of my mobile phone flickered and then flattened out. Great, I thought. No signal. I slowed down. The road felt like it was one blind bend after another at this stage, and I was nervous of a car traveling in the opposite direction. I had seen the results of enough road accidents in my police career to know how a few seconds of carelessness can change a life forever. Thankfully, there seemed to be no other traffic on the road, and apart from a few turnings which clearly led to country lanes, the road kept straight on. There was nowhere else to go but the coastal town where my future lay. When my headlights finally picked out a rust speckled road sign saying the town was one mile away, I felt a wave of relief. I was tired after all day on the road and looking forward to putting my feet up and maybe having a beer. I did not have permanent accommodation in the town sorted out, so I had booked into a hotel that I had found online. I didn't have a website, just a listing. When I had phoned the number shown, I was told by a gruff-sounding person that a room was available and that it was cash only. I still didn't have any signal on my phone, so as I reached the outskirts of the town, I hoped the hotel would be easy to find. The road cut through a silhouetted row of buildings and brought me out onto what was clearly the town's main street. There was still no other traffic that I could see and I slowed right down to take in the view. One side of the road was the seafront. There was a long, wide pavement, and beyond that, the ocean. It reached out into the darkness. Looking out at the sea, a shiver passed through my body for some reason. It was tiredness, I had told myself, and stress. I had had more than enough of that in the last few months. Buildings lined at the other side of the road. Under the streetlights, I saw a convenience store as I drove slowly along looking for the hotel. There was a barber's as well, a bookmaker's and a pharmacy. There were no lights on in any of them, and I figured that they were closed for the night. A bit further along I passed a cafe. It was still opened, and I could make out a few people inside hunched over tables. A line of houses followed, light seeped out through their drawn curtains. There were cars parked up by the side of the road, one of them had no wheels and was propped up on bricks. No one was out, not even walking a dog and I couldn't hear any music playing or any raised voices. After London, where quietness is a rarity and there's always something happening, it felt strange. No doubt things would feel different in the daytime, I told myself and then smiled. I could see the hotel. I pulled up in front of it, a yellow strip of light shone through a glass pane above the front door. The door had been painted white at some point, but that must have been a while ago, as the paint was faded and cracked in places. In one of the front windows of the hotel, the small sign saying, vacancies was propped against the glass presumably they had flipped it around when there were no vacancies i must admit though as i got my bags out of the car and locked it i couldn't imagine the hotel ever being full it looked tired and shabby and unwanted as long as my room had a comfy bed and hot water in the shower it'd be fine for a few nights i told myself and went up to the front door There was a little bell which I pressed. I could hear a weak buzzing sound inside and I waited, and then waited some more. It was a cold evening and the wind was starting to bite at my skin. There seemed to be a mist drifting in off the sea as well. I pressed the bell again and this time did not take my finger off. A couple of minutes later I heard a gruff voice inside say, Okay, okay, and finally the door opened. A man peered out at me. He could have been anywhere between forty and sixty years old, honestly I couldn't say. A week's worth of stubble and short, greasy hair bookended a pale face riddled with broken veins. He looked at me and his nose wrinkled as if I was a bad smell. I remained patient and polite. Good evening, I said. I am Mr. Taylor and I have a reservation. He narrowed his eyes and said in a hoarse voice, I suppose you had better come in. It did not come as a surprise when he did not offer to help me with my bags. I picked them up and I trudged inside. After taking my payment in cash in full, he handed over a large key attached to a plastic disk with a number on it. The second floor. He growled by way of explanation then headed into a nearby room and closed the door. It sounded like there was a quiz show playing on a TV in there. I sighed and made my way up the stairs. The carpet on them was worn bare in places. I couldn't tell if the carpet in the hallway was the same because there were no lights on. I took out my mobile phone and used the torch to look for a light switch. It was just to my right. I flicked it on, but nothing happened. So I ran the torch across the ceiling and saw an empty socket where a light bulb should have been. My opinion of the hotel was getting lower by the minute. I used the torch and my phone to find my room. The lock was stiff, but it opened eventually, and I stepped into the room. There was a light bulb in the room. It flickered and then came on slowly to reveal grimy curtains that had once been pink, but now made me think of blood stains that somebody had tried to wash out. The walls were painted lime green and the bed sheets were brown. A small bedside table had a broken lamp on it, and a printed sheet of instructions about what to do in the event of a fire. The reverse of the sheets informed me that smoking pets and takeaway food were not allowed in the room. There was nothing else apart from the door leading to a cramped bathroom. I checked it out. There were cracks in the sink and a shower cubicle with no curtain. The toilet should have been taped off as a crime scene. There was also the most disgusting smell that seemed to be coming from the sink, and the shower as much as the toilet. Getting the drains fixed was one of the many things this place needed to get sorted, I thought. And then went back into the main room, sat in the bed and vowed that first thing in the morning, I would find somewhere else to stay. I was so unhappy that I didn't even bother undressing. I just laid down on top of my bed sheets and closed my eyes. I got no sleep. This was mainly because the window in the room did not close properly and rattled constantly in the wind. There were also the disturbing sounds of scratching that I heard every now and then. It started to get light at about 8am. I yawned, stretched and rolled over and found myself face to face with a mouse. It was standing on the pillow looking at me. Its nose twitched and then it scampered off. I groaned and went for a shower. The water came out in bursts of freezing cold and boiling hot and I felt worse after the shower than I had before. Feeling about ten years older than when I had entered the room, I left. I had all my bags with me. There was no way that I was ever returning. I trudged down the stairs and I couldn't see anybody else around. The smell of fried food had filled the hallway. It was like the air was thick with grease. A radio was playing in one of the rooms. I put the oversized key on a table by the front door and laughed with a sigh of relief. Outside it felt even colder than the night before. Litter rolled down the street and carried by the wind. I unlocked the car, threw my things in and got behind the wheel. I had a bar's worth of signal on my phone and managed to bring up a map of the town. The police station was 10 minutes down the road. The first thing that I was going to do was make a hot drink, with two sugars. Everything else would have to wait. I looked in my back mirror, signaled, even though there was still no other traffic on the road and then set off. The sky was gray and the sea was grayer still. I could see for miles out over it. It looked bleak and icy cold and once again, a shiver passed through me. Thankfully, I could feel the first tendrils of heat reaching up from the car's heater. Feeling better for that, I drove on. As I neared where the map had said the police station was, I saw an old pier reaching out over the sea. It looked like it was on the verge of collapse. As such, it did not look out of place here. A minute or so later, I spotted the police station and parked up outside of it. The station was a one-story concrete building. The swirls of spray paint were still visible on the walls where graffiti had been almost but not quite been cleaned off. It had metal grills over the window and a sturdy-looking door. A laminated sign with a police in black letters ran across the top of the door. There was an intercom to one side of the door. I pressed it, cleared my throat, and said, Hello, it's John Taylor. I'm the new officer. Hoping that they were expecting me, I stood back. And sure enough, the door buzzed. I pushed it open and went in. I found myself in a small reception area. There were two steel chairs that looked very uncomfortable and a low wooden table. A poster with the slogan, Lock it before you leave, was pinned on a corkboard on the wall. And there was another door which opened with an arthritic click. A man in uniform stepped out into the reception area. He looked tired and his uniform was badly in need of a dry clean. We shook hands and he introduced himself as Martin Wilson. He was a police a constable like myself. I followed him into the main part of the police station and he showed me where my locker was, the toilet in the holding cell. There was only one. It was a narrow, claustrophobic space with a stone platform for the prisoner to sit or sleep on. Wilson seemed friendly enough, but he moved slowly. It was like he was drained of energy. After the cell, we headed back to the office space. There were a couple of desktop computers which looked about 20 years old, and a fax machine. I had heard of these, but it was the first time that I had seen one in real life. Finally, my new colleague got down to business. Would you like a coffee? He asked. I smiled as I went over to the small kitchen area which took up one corner of the office. There was a kettle, a fridge, a jar of instant coffee, a jar of powdered milk, a bag of white sugar, half a dozen mugs, all of which were in desperate need of a wash and a sink. There was an unpleasant smell drifting up from the sink. It was the same as the smell in the bathroom at the hotel. I had not meant to, but I pulled a face. A tired smile spread across Wilson's face. Ah, yes, he said. I'm sorry about the smell. The drainage system for the town is connected to the sea. It's meant to discharge out into the ocean, but sometimes the sea flows into the drains and everything gets blocked up and festers. And that smell is the result. He shrugged in a, what can you do about it gesture. Then asked me if I took sugar in my coffee. After Wilson had made us both a drink, we went back to the desktops. I sipped my coffee and shuddered. It was dreadful. Wilson turned a computer on. As it powered up slowly, accompanied by a chorus of buzzes and rattles. I asked Wilson how long he had been here. He sighed and replied, Too long. He stared into his screen as it flickered into low-tech life before going on. I've seen better days and so has this town. When I first arrived, we still had tourists coming here. They had arrived on coaches from Manchester and Liverpool and stayed in the hotels and the guest houses that used to be all along the seafront. There's only one hotel left now and there's not been any tourists for a long time. They would rather go abroad where the sun is guaranteed. Without them, there's nothing here. No jobs, no money, no prospects. Why do people stay then? I asked. He shrugged. It's home and the local community is very tight-knit. People look after each other. There's actually very little crime as a result of this. His computer gave one final rattle and finally seemed to be up and running. He started tapping at the keys. I put the coffee down, I couldn't drink anymore, and Wilson's description of the town had left me feeling depressed. My new start was now feeling like a dreadful mistake, but I wasn't prepared to give up on day one. So, I said, when do we go out and patrol? He looked at me blankly, then understanding dawned on his face. "'Oh, patrol,' he replied. "'And to be honest, I usually just stay in the station all day. "'But if you want to go, that's fine by me.' "'Wow, this guy's standards had really slipped,' I thought, but said nothing. "'I wanted to make friends here, not new enemies, so I simply smiled and said, "'Yes, I'll go on patrol.' I'll go and get my uniform from my car and get changed. Then if you can give me the keys to the patrol car. He looked at me blankly again before saying, The patrol car broke down six months ago and is still not fixed. I said nothing, changed into my uniform and set off on patrol. Old school style, on foot. I thought that it would be nice to walk by the sea, so I crossed over the road. As I did so, I noticed the unpleasant smell again and glanced down to see a gutter in the road. The odor coming out of it was so bad that I held my breath for a moment. A few minutes later, I passed the old pier that I had seen from the car. Close up, its decrepit state was shocking. It was made from cast iron that was eaten through in places by rust. I couldn't see any safety barriers where it ended out over the sea. I made a mental note to ask Wilson why the thing wasn't blocked off for health and safety reasons and then I carried on my way. There were a few people out and about. They all looked pale and kind of lethargic and no one was smiling. An old couple, both using walking sticks, were headed towards me. I smiled as they approached and said, Good morning. I'm your new police officer. It's lovely to meet you. They both glared at me and kept walking. I whistled under my breath and thought, strike one, and then carried on. I tried saying hello to the next half a dozen people I saw, but nobody would engage with me. On estates in the poorest parts of London, the police were viewed as the enemy, so I wouldn't have been surprised by a negative reaction to a uniformed officer there. But I just couldn't see what the problem was here in this small town by the sea. Feeling deflated, I decided to call into a cafe that I had spotted and see if I could get a decent cup of coffee to lift my spirits. The smell of fried food once again assaulted my senses as I entered the cafe. This town was not a place for those who believed in healthy living. A handful of customers were sitting at tables. They were all silent and staring into their cups. One man was wiping a slice of white bread around his plate, mopping up the greasy remains of a meal. I didn't have the strength to say hello to anyone, so I went up to the counter and asked for a cappuccino to go. The man behind the counter wore a dirty white apron that was splattered with more grease, acting as if I had asked for something utterly unreasonable. He poured a coffee into a beaker and handed it over without saying a word. The coffee looked like black sludge and was definitely not a cappuccino. Still not saying anything and still not wanting to rock the boat, I paid and laughed. There were wooden benches facing out to the sea here and there along the pavement. I slumped into one and looked at my coffee. I couldn't face it. I put it down on the bench and I stared out to the sea. There were no boats, which by this point did not surprise me. Just the endless grayness there was a pebble beach sloping down to the sea. I tried to imagine holiday makers in the past walking excitedly out of their hotels and heading for the beach to sit there and sunbathe and enjoy being by the water. But I just couldn't. It was so gloomy, it was no wonder tourists no longer came here. I shook my head, got to my feet and continued on my patrol. I had taken half a dozen steps when I heard a voice behind me say, Shame. It was a deep and booming voice, and whoever had spoken was clearly not happy. I turned around. An old man was standing by the bench, glaring at me, and then he looked at the coffee cup that I had left on the bench. I cursed myself, I should have put it in a bin, but I had completely forgotten about it. Well, it was too late now, I was busted. ''Shame,'' the man repeated. He had a shock of thick gray hair, yellow teeth, and wore a pinstriped three-piece suit that had seen much better days. He raised a finger and he pointed it at me. His fingernail was grossly long. ''Shame on you, an officer of the law littering our seafront. It is a disgrace.'' I shall be contacting your chief to make an official complaint." I must admit that I did not even know who my chief constable was for my new post. He or she was probably based a long way away in the city and would have no idea who I was and would probably have to look the town up on a map. Still this was the last thing that I needed. I am very sorry, I began to say. It is too late for apologies, the man said talking over me, and then he turned and walked away. I watched him go and then trudged sadly on. I had bought a taste of the sandwich from the convenience store for my lunch and walked the streets until it started to go dark, and then headed back to the police station. Wilson was just finishing for the day when I had arrived. How did it go? He asked. I fessed up about my encounter with the man angry at my littering. Wilson grimaced. Not good. And that sounds like Joshua Fenton. He's a well-established community leader. Wilson scratched his chin. And I could almost see the cogs inside his head turning as he thought. I'll try and have a word with him. He said eventually. And then he said goodnight and laughed. I put my head in my hands. I had been in town less than 24 hours and it was going from bad to worse. And there was no sign of that trend changing because I had nowhere to stay that night. Unless I went back to the only hotel in town. No way, I told myself and went to get the rest of the bags out of my car. I carried them through to the cell and put them inside. I took out all my spare clothes and laid them on the stone platform that passed as a bed in the cell. Having made a crude mattress for myself, I lay down. It was horribly uncomfortable, but it was still better than the hotel. Thinking this, I closed my eyes and fell asleep. After a broken night's sleep, I gave up trying to rest. I put my things back in the bags and carried them out to the car. I didn't want Wilson to know that I had slept in the cell. It was early, so thankfully there was no sign of him. Having hidden the evidence of my sleeping arrangements, I washed in the sink. The unpleasant smell rising up from it seemed even worse and it made me feel sick. This made the prospect of the instant coffee even less appealing. So I went to see if I could find anywhere in this forsaken town where I could get a decent drink. I stepped out into the street and stopped dead at my tracks. The dense mist was rolling in over the sea. It was eerie and strangely beautiful. Wanting to take a closer look, I crossed the road. The mist by now had obscured the horizon and was moving rapidly towards the shore. In what felt like no time at all, it reached where I stood and then enveloped me. I could see my hands in front of me but nothing else. The mist was cold against my skin and had a smell that reminded me of the odor that rose from the sinks in the gutter. It was horrible, and I was deciding if I should try and find my way back to the station when I heard a strange sound in the distance. It seemed to have come from the direction of the sea. It could have been the wind, I thought, or a seagull. I had no idea. I listened, and there it was again. It was a high, keening sound, almost like I tensed, listened harder. Yeah, it sounded like somebody crying out, somebody who surely needed help. Conscious that I was unsighted because of the mist, I started to walk towards where I thought the sound had come from, and then I heard it again. The call was louder this time and more urgent. I began to jog, guided by the call. My heart was beating fast and I could feel the rush of adrenaline. I shouted out, Police, who is it, what's wrong? There was no reply apart from a new desperate call. I sprinted towards it, racing blindly through the mist which was beginning to clear. Suddenly I could see the ground. It was iron corroded with rust. Something was very wrong and I knew it. I stopped in my tracks. The mist was continuing to clear. As quickly as it had descended, it had lifted and I could see exactly where I was. I was standing at the ragged edge of the pier. Twenty feet below me, the sea rose and fell in a torrent of gray. Fear slammed through me. If I had taken another couple of steps, I would have fallen from the pier into that maelstrom. Odds are I would have been killed. Gingerly, I took a backward step and then another, inching away from the precipice. In my panic, I had forgotten about the voice calling out, that it almost led me to my death. I looked around. I had an unbroken view of the ocean now, and there was no one in the water. I listened the only thing that I could hear was the sound of the waves crashing into each other and the worn supports of the pier. I turned and began to walk back to the station. If there was someone in the water then the coast guard needed to be called in and a search and rescue operation be launched. Only as I approached the station I began to wonder, had it all been my imagination? I was already stressed out and exhausted after two nights with hardly any sleep. Was my mind twisting ordinary things out of shape because of this? I hurried inside the station and found Wilson had arrived. Tried to remain professional. I told him what had happened, though I left out the part about me almost toppling into the sea. He listened patiently and seemed entirely unconcerned. It's the mist, he said. The first few times you experience it, it can make you disoriented and sense your imagination into overdrive. To be honest, what you probably heard was a seagull. Starting to feel pretty stupid, I looked at my shoes and said, That's one of the things that I thought it was at first. Well, there you go, he said. Mystery solved. Now, how about we start the day properly? He took a flask out of a plastic shopping bag that he had with him and added, I made this at home. It's proper coffee. He unscrewed the lid of the flask and the most wonderful smell of rich filter coffee drifted out. It was such a simple thing and it made me happier than I had been in what felt like a very long time. To make things even better... Wilson also produced a large blueberry muffin from the shopping bag. Reinvigorated by the coffee and muffin, I set off on patrol, leaving Wilson to put his feet up. I was still not impressed with his approach to being a police officer, but I did not mind so much because of his thoughtful gesture. My second day on patrol was much like my first. I was not a welcome presence in the town, but give it time, I thought. The townsfolk would get used to seeing me out on the beat, and slowly they would come around. Well that was my plan anyway as I walked up and down the main street, punctuated by a stop off in the cafe where I loaded up on some carbs. As dusk started to fall I headed back to the station. Wilson was just leaving as I had arrived. He looked as though that he had something on his mind as if he had had something he wanted to say. I did not push him, and after an uncomfortable gap, he finally looked at me and said, I appreciate what you're trying to do. I wish I could do the same, but it's just, uh, I think you're strong inside and I'm not. I tried to think of something to say in reply, but Wilson was already walking away. We can talk more tomorrow, I thought as I watched him head down the street. The first flecks of a new sea mist were drifting in, and soon I had lost sight of him as the mist once more obscured everything. I sighed and went into the station to prepare for another night in the cell. It was still mighty uncomfortable, but I had managed a good couple of hours of sleep, and in the morning after I had washed, I promised myself that arranging proper accommodation would be one of my priorities for the day. I turned one of the ancient PCs on and started searching online while I waited for Wilson to arrive. By 9.30 when there was still no sign of him, I started to get concerned. I found his home details on the system and tried calling him but his landline and mobile rang out. I decided the best thing to do was head out on and patrol as normal and make a detour to his house to check if he was okay. I was not far from the station when I saw the distinctive figure of Joshua Fenton heading my way. I had already figured out that he was one of those people who always had a grievance just simmering under the surface and sure enough. He walked right to me and pretty much shouted in my face. The police are worthless, they do nothing to keep us safe. You strut around the town as if you own it and the other one Wilson, he's the worst. He's a drunk, did you know that? Did you? I felt his spittle against my skin as his tirade flared. Thankfully, he seemed to be done. He gave me one last filthy look and stomped off. Much as I had hated to believe anything this man said, it struck me that it was possible Wilson was absent from work because he was sleeping off a hangover. And strictly speaking, I should report his absence to our superiors. But I wasn't going to go down the path of speaking out against a colleague again. I took a deep breath and carried on my way. I didn't make it far before another of the sea mists began to descend. I was close to one of the benches, so I decided to put my feet up until it passed. I sat down and looked out at the approaching wall of mist, and was alarmed when I noticed there was a woman standing in the water. She wasn't far out. The sea only lapped at her ankles, but I did not think it was safe for her to be there. I shouted out to her and waved my arms. All she did was wave back. I cursed under my breath and hurried out onto the pebble beach and towards her. You need to come out of the sea, I said as I reached the water's edge. The mist was closing in rapidly on both of us. I could still see her clearly enough for the moment though. She looked about my age and had long and dark hair. In different circumstances, my first thought might have been how beautiful she was, but I found her behavior too concerning. Trying to ignore the freezing cold water lapping around my legs, I finally made it to her. We were close enough to touch, and close enough to see each other despite the mist. She smiled and said, You're a policeman as well. Her voice was soft, almost musical in its tone. I am, I replied, not sure what she meant, but this wasn't the time to be worrying about it. And I would like you to come back with me to the shore where it's safe, I added. She laughed and put her hand on my shoulder and said, No, I want to go further out. Come with me into the depths, my love. There was an edge to her smile now, a darkness in her eyes that I did not like. I moved away from her. To the sea, she said. To the sea. Her voice sounded different. It was harsh and her words felt like they were rushing towards me like a wave. I took a step away from her and said, I am not going any further out into the sea with you. Her mouth twisted into a sneer and her lips had parted. She bared her teeth and hissed. You are mine, mortal. And then she changed. The skin and flesh on her face seemed to drift away, revealing the skull beneath. And her hair came alive. It rose and twirled into grotesque, filthy tendrils, which whipped out at my face. She was hideous. A creature from a nightmare made real. I staggered backwards and almost fell into the sea, but I managed to keep my feet and stumbled away. The thing in the sea called out as I fled. An inhuman sound which even in my panic, I realized that I had heard before. It was the sound which had called out to me and led me to the pier in my brush with death. Running blind, I made it back to shore I stood there with my hands on my knees, gasping for breath, and the mist began to clear. I was safe, and I could see people emerging from their houses. Their faces were pale and drawn. They looked shocked and afraid, but they were coming to my aid. My relief was tempered though, when I saw Joshua Fenton was walking at the head of the approaching crowd. His eyes blazed with fury and as he came closer to me, he raised his hand and pointed an accusing finger. You, he screamed, you should have gone with her. The sirens take those they choose and leave the rest of us in peace. Now we must make an offering to the sea and beg their forgiveness. I was dumbstruck by his words and struggling to understand why some of the townsfolk were dragging a small boat towards me. And then others of their number grabbed a hold of me and began trying to bind my arms and legs with rope, all led by the shouted instructions of Joshua Fenton. There were other voices as well. They were out at sea. I glanced that way and saw a dark figure standing in the waves. It was the creature that I had escaped from, and it was not alone. There were more of the fiends emerging into sight. Their voices joined their dark sisters in a chorus of primal, terrifying screams. And I understood. I was to be the offering. If the townsfolk could get me into the boat and I was unable to escape, I would be taken out to sea. I would be sacrificed to the creatures that they called sirens. I had one chance. I twisted and pulled away from the townsfolk I kicked and punched and bit in a desperate frenzy, and suddenly I was free and forcing my way out of their midst. I ran because my life depended on it, and I needed to get to the police station. I could lock myself in and call for help. Pursued by the baying mob whose cries were framed by the screams of the sirens I ran on, I looked back once and could see with horror that the ocean itself seemed to be in a fury. High waves were crashing over the beach and up onto the pavement. I turned away. My lungs were burning as I ran and my legs felt like they would give way at any moment. But I made it. I barreled into the station and was hit by a nauseating stench. It was one that I had smelt before but this was extreme. I began to choke. And then I noticed a thick, dark liquid pooling on the floor. It was bubbling out of the sink It was unbearable and I had to get away from it. Fighting back the urge to vomit, I stumbled from the station back out onto the street. There was more of the sickening liquid rising from the gutter and spreading across the road. Beyond that, the sea continued to surge. It had reached the road now where it was mixing with the fetid waste. The townsfolk were all running for cover but one man was left standing in the midst of the swirl of filth and sea. Joshua Fenton had his arms raised and was begging the sirens for forgiveness. The foul waste in the sea was rising with a shocking speed. It was already up to his knees. He continued to cry out, imploring the sisters to have mercy. But if the dark forces that ruled here heard his pleas, they ignored him. The corrupted water... Pulled him off his feet and swept him back and into the ocean. I saw him claw at the air and try and call out one more time. And then I lost sight of him beneath the filth infected waves. I stood there feeling numb and watched as the sea and wastewater had subsided. The townsfolk had all disappeared inside. The town was silent. The sea gray and empty. It was over. The sirens had their sacrifice. Joshua Fenton was in their abhorrent embrace. I composed myself as best I could and then called headquarters on my phone and reported that there had been a tragic incident. And then I paused, holding the phone away from me. Joshua Fenton was dead. And so I realized was Wilson, the flawed but good man who had told me that he was weak. He must have gone with the siren out to sea. Well, I could do one thing for him at least. I lifted the phone back up and I lied. I told them that there had been a storm and a tidal wave had flooded the town. There were two people missing, presumed dead. Joshua Fenton, who had been swept out to sea, and Wilson, who had been caught in the waves as he protected the townsfolk. He was a hero, I told them. And then I ended the call. There was nothing more to be said or done. I knew no one outside of the town would believe me about the sirens, and I wanted nothing to do with the townsfolk who would have sacrificed me to save their own hides. Let the sirens take them, I thought, and then walked away. I'm no longer a policeman now. I drift from place to place, always cities and always far from the coast. At night, I dream that the sirens are calling me and when I wake, I can still hear them in the distance. And then the dream fades and I'm left alone, knowing that no matter where I go, I will never be able to escape the sea and the terror that it brings. If you're in the market for a new mattress, then you're in luck. Ghostbed's big Labor Day sale is happening right now. Our friends at GhostBed make incredibly high-quality mattresses, and right now, you can get your hands on one for a fraction of the cost. Each GhostBed is made with high-quality, supportive materials and signature cooling material that draws heat away from your body. No more waking up in a pool of sweat, even in the dead of summer. Purchasing a new mattress from GhostBed is risk-free with an industry-leading warranty, 101-night sleep trial, and free shipping. Plus, Ghostbed Sleep Expert Team is standing by to help you find the perfect bed for you. Head to Ghostbed.com now to take advantage of their Labor Day sale and save big. Use code MR.Creeps for 40% off site wide. Head to Ghostbed.com/slash Creepscast now to get started. I was raised in a secret religion. We are time travelers between heaven and hell. Written by CIA Herb I always knew my family was involved in some strange things. We never celebrated Christmas, Easter, or even Festivus. No, our main holiday was the Overtide, on the first full moon after the summer solstice. As my parents constantly drilled into my head, we were reapiners. The few remaining mystics of an ancient path the reapers devoted their lives to travel we explored other worlds other universes even many of us died in the way or sometimes travelers from our spiritual path would come back totally insane and rambling some had even clawed their own eyes out as if trying to stop the horrors that they were seeing my father had no real power in the Reapers, but he was one of the most accomplished travelers in the world. The young male children of the leaders would often accompany my father out to the woods and to ancient cave systems near our house, where he would show them unimaginable things. One of the young trainees, a brash young man who couldn't have been older than seventeen, came back with totally white hair after a single night in the caves with my father. When I asked my dad what had happened, he simply gave me a sly smile and walked away. On my own 17th birthday, which took place a few years ago, I was to follow my father out into the forest before sunset. We would be heading to Hollowhead Cave, a 10-mile hike from the parking area. My father found the dirt road pulling over on a slight turnaround. The nearest neighbor was miles down the road. We took no cell phones or supplies with us. We didn't have so much as a knife. We had been hiking for hours. I could feel blisters starting to form on my feet, and trickles of sweat rolled down from my hairline. The insects buzzed and chirped in the ferns and trees surrounding us and a cloud of gnats followed us everywhere we went. There was a slight smell of flowers in the air mixed with pines. Other than the insects, it was a beautiful and peaceful forest. Finally, my father broke the long silence. Are you scared? My father asked. I looked over at him. His strange, gray eyes were watching me, studying me, They seemed to snap and sizzle with inner energy. My father looked younger than his age, sturdy and well-built. Muscles grown over a lifetime of work had filled out his clothes. Even though he was in his 50s, he had almost no wrinkles on his face and a few white hairs. Those are eyes that have seen beyond, I thought to myself. Those are eyes that have seen other worlds. The light that seems to shine from them must be holy. It must be the light of a thousand other universes. And does traveling really bring enlightenment, Pa? I said. He shrugged, looking forward again. It may or it may not. Enlightenment is already here at every moment. Just like the same deathless mind is always present in every universe. Or the same eternal soul is present in all the seconds of your life. Traveling to other spaces may help you see how this eternal consciousness is the same in every universe, how that endless mind stretches everywhere. It is more of a deepening awareness that you get from travel, one that brings enough wisdom to see the eternal is already here. But you didn't answer my question, my father said. Yes, I am afraid. It was nearly dark when we got to the cave. My father had been quiet most of the way. Now as he knelt in front of me, I saw what looked like a hand mirror in his back pocket, rolled up in cloth. ''What's that in your pocket?'' I asked. ''I always hold the black mirror,'' he said. ''We use it for training the young, opening up to the idea of traveling.'' showing them a little of what is out there waiting for those with courage on their side. The cave was cool and refreshing. The torches had been put out along the walls, though I don't know when they were lit. I heard what sounded like a babbling stream echoing up through the rocky chambers, and I smelled far-off water mixing with the smoke of the torches. What about the red mirror? I whispered. I had heard rumors about it, but they were vague and contradictory. The Red Mirror. We don't generally speak of it. The High Priest, Arkovich, personally attends to it most of the year. He tries to make it sleep. He tells me that prayer and meditation seem to soothe it, but sometimes it wakes up. I'll tell you a story while we walk. It'll make the uh, time pass faster. His voice seemed to crack slightly at this. His face looked grimmer and thinner in the flickering light. He looked at me with his strange gray eyes and in them, I saw the traveler that my father truly was. He had an iron core that was so fearless it almost seemed mad. He gave a nearly inaudible sigh and then he started the story. High Priest Arkovich was given the three mirrors in a somewhat strange way. He was on a meditative retreat, sleeping outside and drinking from the streams, eating ferns and mushrooms and whatever else he could scrounge. After the first day, he woke up to a pile of dead squirrels next to his head. Their necks were all snapped and they were stacked in a little pyramid. The second night, he tried to stay up, but after hours of standing guard, he lost the battle. He says that he fell asleep with his back against a tree. When he awoke, he found a pile of hundreds of shoes surrounding him. He says that when he left the spot to forage or drink, these piles were taken away in the blink of an eye. It was as if they hadn't been there at all, and there was no sign of anyone in the forest. He was out about a dozen miles from the road, far down a whining deer trail. He wasn't going to be spooked by these childish pranks, he told me so he stayed another night. This time, he awoke to find a black box next to him. He opened it, expecting an animal's head or some other rubbish, but instead, he found these three strange mirrors. He touched them all in turn, the white, the red, and the black, and then he pulled them out. He looked into the red. The flat, polished stone on both sides sure made a poor mirror, he told me. In fact, all three of them were almost totally useless. They were clearly hand mirrors, of that he was certain. But who would put just a slightly reflective stone inscribed with strange runes in place of the actual mirror glass? And then his mind made a connection. He had heard of shamans doing similar things to this. Making special hand mirrors for rites involving psychedelic drugs or mystical experiences such as these shamans in Africa, with their iboga vine. As he looked into it, though, he said the strange ruins seemed to start glowing. They sent out red light that pierced straight into his head. He said that he tried closing his eyes, but even with them fully shut, all he could see was swirling tunnels of red light. And then he was gone. When we travel, son, you know that we hear the ringing. Anytime you cross universes, all you can hear is that incessant, high pitched sound which seems to vibrate your teeth and make your eyes water. I nodded. I had done some astral projection and lucid dreaming, both of which were considered vastly inferior by the ears, like toys for children to play with. The most advanced in our religion always traveled bodily, it was considered the way to liberation. Enlightenment itself was the goal and seeing the true nature of all things by travel was the principal path. But some of the older members of our religion had told me that it was also terrifying. Especially since anybody who traveled bodily could die if something in these strange alien worlds attacked them. Markovich says the ringing was the most intense that he had ever heard. He said that he thought his head would split open... The red light had still blinded him, but he felt himself floating. And then he felt the light receding and opened his eyes. The ringing in his ears had gradually faded as he looked around, realizing that he was in a strange jungle, still holding the red mirror in one hand. But the ruins had stopped glowing and faded back into the stone, and the mirror again just looked like a useless decoration. He says the trees of the jungle stretched hundreds of feet above him with slippery yellow trunks and thin branches periodically reaching out. Ferns taller than a man surrounded him. He could barely see over the thick vegetation. There were no cries of birds, no insects, no animals of any kind that he could see. And then he heard a rustling, just a slight movement. Turning, he saw a blood-red shape duck into the ferns. Arkovich began to run. He ran for his life. He didn't know what kind of world he was in, but he knew when he was being stalked. He heard more of those things and saw glimpses of that bright red hide they had, and then one jumped directly in front of them. It stood over ten feet tall, with dozens of black eyes on stalks rising from the top of its thin oval head. Its legs were sleek and reptilian. Like the legs of a velociraptor, and long arms with knife-like claws at the end, it opened its mouth wide, showing rows of parallel serrated teeth. And from a bulging orange sack in the back of its throat, it spit at him. Sticky white webs shot out and wrapped around his legs before he even knew what was happening. And then he heard dozens more of those things closing in on him from all around, ready to begin shredding his body. These were clearly the apex predators. He was stupid for not realizing why there were no animal sounds now. Likely, the life in the area had gone silent and moved on when they realized a herd of those things were in the area. As the nearest one bent down, hissing, silver streams of saliva running down its pointed chin, Arkovich picked up the red mirror instinctively he traced his finger along the ruins hoping for any sign of life from it at once it lit up blinding him with a red light and he felt himself floating again the ringing in his ears he awoke at his house nearly 20 miles away from where he had started just a earlier still wrapped in webs my father stopped in front of me He had just come to a sharp turn in the cave, the rocks jutting out on both sides and making it thin and claustrophobic. I had to turn my body to slide through. I saw my father having more trouble with his larger frame, but eventually he pushed himself through, sweating and slightly scraped up. Wow, I said. Where do you think he went? My father shrugged. Son, the mirrors can send you anywhere at any time, but... The red mirror in particular tends to send travelers to the worst places where predators or demons are waiting. Other times, people have found themselves on nearly dead planets where strange robed beings have floated in the mist. Arkovich's son used the red mirror and he never came back at all. The mirror just showed up back in Arkovich's office after his son had been missing for three days. We don't know where they went, and we don't want more people being lost in such a way. And now, we are here, my father finished saying. I looked around, frowning. It looked like just another part of the cave to me, and then I realized that I did see something. Out of the corner of my eye, one of the walls of the cave, it seemed to shimmer and glow. Even when I got close to it and touched it, it felt warm, too much warmer than the other stone walls of the cave. It was only the space about the size of a door. Yes, my son, my father said. That is the gateway where we will send you through. Your test of manhood will be to see where the black mirror takes you. If the red mirror took Arkovich without any door, why do we need this one? I asked. My father leaned in close so that you don't come back 20 miles away at the bottom of a lake or 2,000 miles away at the bottom of some volcano, he said. My heart was beating fast and my stomach had started to hurt. I was having second thoughts. Okay, let's do this, I said. Let's see where the mirror takes me. He nodded and took out these supplies for the ritual. With a prayer to the eternal mind, he handed me the mirror. The mirror. It felt much heavier than it looked. Moreover, it was as cold as death. As soon as I had touched it, the ruins lit up, blinding me. Pure white light shot out of them and the shimmering of the doorway was so intense now that I saw sparks and electricity. And then the wall opened. Every hair was standing up as I watched it happen, as if I were underneath a forming lightning bolt. All I could hear was buzzing, Holding the mirror tightly, I walked forward, through the doorway. Instantly, everything went black and the buzzing and electricity had stopped. I opened my eyes in a strange place. The sun was warm and the wind blew so fiercely that during the strongest of gusts, I stumbled and feared that I may lose my footing. Looking around, I saw mountains with irons and other metals peeking out, forming sharp irregular blocks at the bottom. The tops disappeared under thick stratified yellow clouds that blocked out the sky. Even the sky here was more than a hazy orange silhouette in the impenetrable cold layer. I looked around, unsure of where to go. I could barely see any signs of life on this planet, besides some strange brown moss growing on the base of the mountains. I couldn't ask my dad or the mirror for help, but then I heard something. At first, I thought it was part of the wind, but I quickly realized that it sounded more like gurgling and screaming. I realized with horror that it was in English. Help, the voice said. Please, for the love of God, help me back before it comes. I followed the voice around some rocks standing nearly 20 feet high and found a man on the ground, bloody and missing a leg. He raised his head at my appearance and I realized that I knew who this was. It was High Priest, Arkovich's son, the one that had gone missing a while back. It was almost hard to recognize him with stringy hair, blood scraped skin and nearly all his clothes were torn or missing, but I could still see it in the eyes and construction of the face. It's okay, I said, leaning down. I'll get you out, it's going to be okay. No! He said, it's coming back, we have to go now. He looked behind me and his eyes widened. Oh god, it's too late. Without any weapon or even an idea of where I was, I turned to look at what nightmares this world held. The same ones that presumably had torn off or even eaten this poor man's leg. As soon as I saw it, I began to scream. At first, what appeared like the shadow of a huge hand stretched across the lifeless, hard-packed dirt of the strange planet. But this place may have had more life than I realized. With a cry, I realized that what looked like a black hand was just the shadow of the skittering, massive, spider-like being that approached us in a blur. I turned back to Arkovich's son, whose name now came to me, Alaric. Alaric Arkovich. Oh god, get me out of here! Alaric screamed, his voice booming and echoing through the canyon. The massive mandibles of the spider creature flicked open and closed faster and faster, as if it could already taste the delicious, soft flesh of the injured man lying prone on the ground. Without thinking, I grabbed his outstretched hand and tried to drag him away from the beast, but... I had no real hope of outrunning this monstrosity. It towered at least 20 feet in the air and looked to have a dozen sharp, branching legs, each stabbing into the hard dust with every forward step that it took. I grabbed the black mirror out of my pocket, screaming into it. Even though I was young at the time, I wasn't stupid and my instincts were still sharp. Please, I ask you, God, the over, the one who sees. Take me out of here! I said, trying to look into the center of the hypnotizing electrical current that ran across the surface of the smooth and glassy mirror. At first, nothing happened and my heart began to race. The same thought ran across my mind over and over. I'm going to die out here. I'm going to die here on some strange world. The mirror has undoubtedly failed me. It sees my desperation and mocks me. But no, that was the red mirror. The one who had led Arcovich's son to his mutilation, and perhaps had abandoned him. Was it only a fluke that I had come to this place, to what looked like an alternate earth? A strange desert plain with massive insectoid monstrosities was not my idea of a vacation. And then the mirror began to change, Ruins that had been invisible only moments before now began to light up. I ran as fast as I could while dragging the still living man. I could only pray the mirror would be quick. I felt a strange vibration from Alaric's hand that I grasped. It felt like shaking or trembling. Quick desperate pulls in different directions. But my attention never wavered. Within moments, the mirror had sent me traveling. My vision went white and my ears rang, as always happens when we pass between worlds. A sense of exhilaration and pride filled my heart. I had done it. I had saved Arkovich's son. I phased back into being in the Hollowhead Cave, where my father awaited. His face looked stoic and blank, his eyes totally flat as he stared around at the stone. For a moment, it seemed that he didn't see me at all. "'Father!' I cried. "'I'm back and you won't believe it. Arkovich's son, Alaric. "'I saw him and I got him back.' I had a sudden surge of energy, but then the whining of the light-filled doorway in the cave seemed to pierce deep into my brain. I almost felt like I would faint. I took a few deep, slow breaths and sat down on the floor, still holding tight to Alaric's hand. My father looked down at me, his face pale, his mouth open in a silent expression of horror. I looked behind me, expecting to see Alaric's unconscious body, but instead I realized that I only held a dismembered arm, a sharp point of a bone sticking out of the bloody limb. And then I did faint and everything went black. I woke up to a feeling of cold, clean water in my tongue. Someone held a tin cup to my mouth, elevating my head and trying to pour water from what seemed like a local stream into my mouth. It instantly refreshed me and my eyes flew open. Thank God I was no longer holding the limb of the dead man. Well, I guess we know what happened to Alaric, my father said. He must have used the red mirror. I would guess the mirror returned without him. Abandoning him in some horrible place, maybe a night when the demons of that place are most active. It wouldn't be the first time the Red Mirror is acted with such treachery. It cannot leave you if you keep it directly on your person at all times. But if you fall while running and it goes flying, he shrugged, it can decide to return home to Earth Prime. That was the Reaperner name for the regular Earth. The one where people built cities in the year was at 2023 AD. The starting point for all Reapener travel, as far as I knew. Unless Reapeners existed on other worlds or had started to convert some of the strange otherworldly creatures that they encountered to our secret path. I don't know about those other worlds, but this looked like an endless desert with huge rabbit insects. The monster must have been the size of a small elephant and faster than any animal I had seen in my entire life, I said. Merle Arkovitch isn't going to respond well to the news, he said. I know he has in his heart still some hope that his son will return, perhaps with wild stories of other universes, but we must go straight to him and let him know. What he does from there is up to him. And so we did hike back to the car, mostly in silence. I was deep in thought, reflecting on my first terrific experience traveling. I had heard stories from the older Reapineers about worlds that they had seen. There were endless universes, endless worlds, and many alternate Earths, some covered in water, others covered in endless deserts, others circling dead stars or black holes in the cold blackness of space. A few also talked about heaven worlds that they had seen, where beings fed on pure bliss and light, where rockets took these strange inhabitants to other galaxies, and a matter of moments in death and disease had been nearly vanquished by the forward march of technology. They talked about beautiful cities floating in the clouds with silver spires miles high, and elevators that took one outside the atmosphere of the planet, To look at the beauty of space without any interference or air to distort the infinite stars. These thoughts passed through my head as we walked in the forest. The smell of pines and flowers clearing my anxiety and bringing me back to the present. Yes, my first trip had been horrific, but I had survived. And now perhaps my news would bring closure to the high priest, who would know what had happened to his son And be able to bury at least a small part of his body an image flashed in my head a tiny coffin a few inches wide by nine inches long with a decomposing arm inside of it a sharp splinter of bone poking out through the torn flesh at the end i shuddered i had never liked arkovich much He made an imposing figure, standing well over six feet tall, his hypnotizing blue eyes staring out at the world, intelligent and determined. But the way that he spoke to people gave me and many others the impression that he thought less of us. No one would ever say it to his face, but he seemed in many ways arrogant and inflexible. However, he had also led the Euripineers to a period of prosperity, we had received converts from Blackwater and other militias, as well as various converts who had immense wealth in the stock market or were involved in the running of a certain large tech companies. He used this to acquire weaponry, to form his own small army and to increase the power of our little island of spirituality in the world. When my father and I pulled up to his house and told him, at the door to his mansion what had transpired, His face grew stonier and angrier. He said not a word. As soon as we had finished, he turned away, saying brusquely, Stay right here, and then slammed the door. Neither my father nor I looked at each other or said a word. The tension in the air felt thick. After about ten minutes, Earl Arkovich came back to the door, looked at my father and me, and addressed us. James, He said to my father and then looked at me. And Tristan. Tristan, your very first travel ends up like this. He shook his head. I'm disappointed in you and both of you, to be honest. The hair rose on the back of my neck. What was he talking about? Reverend, my father said, but Earl raised a hand. Since when do we leave the bodies of our dead in our worlds to be eaten by abominations or fed on by demons? He said, his voice never rising above conversational level, but instead allowing a deep underlying venom to imbue each word. I barely made it back alive, I said frantically unbelieving. Was this priest a madman? We never leave the bodies of our dead, Earl hissed. You two will return with me, Tristan knows the world, he can take us back there. I have called up a team to Hollowhead Cave. You will return with me right now. And so we did. And that's how I found myself back in Hollowhead Cave with a team of seven other men, including my father and Earl Arkovich, planning to go back into another world that very night. We waited for an old man, the most powerful one known for opening doors and traveling. He lived far out in the forest in a small shack, acting like a hermit much of the time and spending most of his time in nature. Yet when the Reapineers went to find him, he would always come and help. He would teach the younger ones about doorways and portals and try to pass on his wisdom as well. I was excited to see this figure, even though I didn't know so much as his name, but I had heard many stories about his power. While we waited, a large black Reapineer named Samuel who Earl had recruited from Blackwater, began to sort through our weaponry. My eyes bulged as I saw them pull out rifles with detachable flashlights and telescopic laser sights, as well as many extra loaded magazines and what I immediately recognized as grenades. They were the kind with the pineapple exterior to allow extra grip when throwing them. I counted seven rifles and maybe a few dozen grenades. It looked to be quite an arsenal. They started handing weaponry around and handed one to me. I took the gun in my hands, looking at its beautiful craftsmanship, feeling the butt of its extendable stock against my shoulder. I felt immediately more comforted by the presence of weapons, even though deep in my mind I wondered how effective any such weapons would be against creatures from another world. As my mind ran through the encounter with this huge, spider-like being, and hairs began to rise in my arms, the gun began to feel a lot smaller. At that moment, the old man walked in, reminding me of depictions of Merlin or Moses that I had seen. His huge white beard extended down nearly to his waist, and he held a solid ironwood staff, the strange wood shining back in the torchlight of the cave. He looked at the mass of us assembled there, seven ribboners in all, all armed with semi-automatic rifles and strapped with multiple clips and grenades all around their chests. "'This is a tall order, reverend,' the old man said to Earl Arkovich, whose face turned into a skull. "'You're the strongest traveler and most accomplished with doorways, old father,' he said." His face still twisted into something ugly and unhappy. Do you say you cannot get us all through the door? Aye, and getting one or two of you through the door before it slams closed is no issue. Seven or eight, however, this will push the talents of even the most accomplished Riponier. And you all have your baggage, your gunnos and exploding granados. I see. With this, he gave a casual flick of his face towards the heavy semi-automatic rifles and grenades strapped across their bodies. Every extra pound we must force through the door will make the chance of success less and less likely. Nevertheless, Arkovich said, it must be done. Are you not a Mary Opa Winston, the greatest and most powerful living traveler? Open the door, I know you can do it. The old man had a petulant and almost childlike look of unhappiness on his bearded face. His huge hooked nose trembling slightly beneath his deep and brown eyes. But he sighed and nodded. It shall be done. The old man whose name was apparently Miriope responded. If God wills, if the Overmind is with us and gives us the power. He will. Arkevich said simply taking the red mirror out of his cloak. We all stared in fascination and horror for a minute. The mirror seemed to have a consciousness of its own, one that could be felt in every part of the cave. It was as if a demon had just opened its eyes in the darkness, and yet it radiated a power that was unmistakable and pure. I felt the hairs rising on my arms and head accompanied by a humming sound like strong electrical power lines filling my ears.
1: Put it away,
0: Mariope cried, his eyes widening, his straight, very white teeth flashing as he opened his mouth in a silent scream. For the love of all gods, put it away until ready. Would you use an atomic bomb simply to give some light in the darkness, or slice off your face so you don't have to shave your beard? Don't treat the trinkets of the other world so lightly. The cave went silent. "'I only wish to bring peace to my son to recover his body and bring it back to us,' Earl said quietly, lethally, like the hissing of a snake. "'Peace does not come out of the end of a gun, my priest,' Meriope said, not in the least bit perturbed. "'It comes from the Overmind, only death that comes out of the end of a gun.' We all stopped, the cave going quiet except for faint breathing, and then the old man started up again. "'Who is the young man whose mind will reveal which world to us?' Muriel asked. I stepped forward. He apprised me, looking me up and down slowly, as if searching for something that wasn't there. And then he sighed. "'Young man, you will be central to this opening.' Your mind must mix with mine, and we must use our combined power to focus on the doorway. You will be the last one through, so your job is ever more dangerous. When the door slams shut, it slams shut instantly. Travelers have been cut in half, I tell you truly. Why one of my mates when I was a lad lost his right hand. Do you understand the gravity of what I have told you? I nodded. Then come by my side and let us begin. The night is drawing on and strange things may be seen in the night over there as well. If it is night. I hope for your sake it isn't. With our guns and grenades now strapped onto our bodies with equipment Samuel had passed around and helped us fasten when necessary, we looked like a ragtag group of rebels. Many of the Reapineers wore the coarse brown robes common to our religion giving them a medieval, monkish appearance. Samuel did not, however. He wore brown desert fatigues and combat boots. Standing nearly six and a half feet tall, his black skin shining and his huge muscles bulging, he was an imposing presence, and I felt the desire to stand near him when any battles erupted. He radiated confidence and deadliness. Are we ready? Earl asked, low, a slight tremor in his voice. The rest nodded. Miriope grabbed my hand. What is your name, lad? He asked in a quiet voice. Tristan, I said. My father is James. I pointed to him. I care not for your father, lad, the old man said, not unkindly. It is you who will carry the task to the end. You are the strongest and purest and the youngest as well. I will wait here until you return until I'm sure you will not. He grabbed my hand. Now begin to meditate on the world you saw. You will be returning there. Earl saw that we were assembled. He pulled out the red mirror going in front of the doorway in the cave. The one that looked like solid stone, impassable. The humming began immediately and the poisonous presence filled the cave. But I closed my eyes and I focused on the world. I felt someone else in my mind, and I realized with horror that it was the old man. Miriope had telepathic power somehow, and he saw my memories with me. I felt his hand twitch and what felt like a surge of electricity passed through our bodies, but it didn't hurt. Focus harder. Meriope said through gritted teeth. Focus on the door, focus on the world. Open the portal. I did, with thousands of images flashing through my mind. The way the sun had shone on the desert, the dead rocks, the many legs of the spider. I focus and sent this thought out front towards the door. It begins to open. Ero cried in a loud ecstatic voice, but I didn't open my eyes. ''Focus harder,'' Miriob said. ''We've almost got it.'' Sweating and straining, my eyes flicking back and forth under their lids, I concentrated. I put all of my energy into those thoughts and that door and then I felt something give. ''Behold,'' Miriob cried as he and I opened our eyes at the same time. ''The portal is opened.'' The men began to run through, scrambling into a dark desert world on the other side of the stone threshold. When the last one was through, Miriope pushed me towards the door. I was sprinting, seeing the door closing. With one last bit of energy, I jumped through as I felt it slam shut behind me. A whoosh of air ran over my skin as the stone slammed back into the wall. In those last moments, I was still connected to Muriel telepathically, and I heard his one thought over and over as I went through the door. Once it closed, it stopped, but I kept hearing it repeating in my head, and nonetheless, "'You think you go to a desert world? Nigh, no, lad. It is a Hades world, and it is night there. I will wait for you here, but it is a horrible place.' And very few will return from such as that. And as I looked back, I saw Miriope's eyes. In the depth of his power, his eyes had widened. And I saw his pupils contracting and expanding rapidly. His eyelids fluttered up and down as if he were seizing. Strength flowed out of him towards the door, a current that seemed to twist the air, like a rising heat wave from a desert. That was the last thing I saw from this world before the nightmare began. When we came through, it was chaos. The red mirror had dumped us in the middle of the night in the worst possible place, as it is known to do. And as I came through, my ears had begun to ring and my vision went white. When traveling between worlds, these things nearly always happened. Knocking one off balance for at least a few seconds, as if a flashbang had just been thrown in the area. But as my vision cleared and my hearing returned, I was relieved to see that this planet was Earth. I could tell that much from the constellations and the moon in the sky. Some other Earth, yes. Perhaps in a universe where life had grown strange and terrifying, but still some form of Earth. In front of us stood a desolate camp. It reminded me of death camps that I had seen footage of. Communist and National Socialist death camps Where people were starved or frozen Row after row of razor wire surrounded the camp And a gate stood at the center It had a sign above it But it had seen so much sun and aging That the letters had faded to almost nothing I saw no guards in the watchtower And nobody shot at us The place radiated silence and death But there was a smell that came from it A smell like rot and crap and corpses. Around the camp, I saw strands of webbing sticking to various fences and posts, covering the dilapidated barracks inside the camp that looked ready to collapse under the slightest breeze. Is this it? Earl asked from my side in a low voice. I looked around. The rocks looked similar, but I had only been in this world for a short time. And if the entire area looked like a rocky desert, what chance did I have of finding the exact same spot? I believe we may be close. The webbing for one. That must be the creature who took your son. Behind us, I heard people clicking off the safeties on their rifles. We began to walk towards the gate. I stayed by the side of my father and Samuel, letting Earl lead the way. As soon as we had entered, I heard a sound that sent shivers of horror through my body. It sounded like the breathing of a dying man with pneumonia. A raspy, gurgling breath that came from all around us. And that smell intensified immediately. The smell of death blew on the breeze towards us. When we had entered the camp, the gate swung shut behind us as if on its own accord. I turned jumping but saw no one there and then they began to come out of the barracks. They were horrifying beyond words. Children in torn rags with rotten bodies. Long stringy black hair hung over their faces and on their striped uniforms blooms of dark red showed long dried blood. Brown streaks mixed with the blood in their eyes shone with hatred and malice as they approached from all sides. Hundreds of them gasped and shook. They reminded me of pictures that I had seen of children in Auschwitz. Their trembling, emaciated legs barely held up their weight. Their knees, knocked together, the bones making a clicking sound. Some had their noses and cheeks eaten away by insects. Black swarms of flies surrounded them, eating their flesh and laying eggs as they walked forward, all staring and rasping at us, the treat in the center of all shoot them samuel cried the one man who had kept his head in the terror of the moment for god's sake do it would you have us all die that broke the stillness and with a deafening roar the rifles began to open fire those of my group on the outside of the circle disappeared first into the crowd of rotting grasping hands the cyanotic blue fingernails of the demonic children in the camp had what looked like dried blood and dirt caked underneath. They bit and clawed like rabid animals. One rapineer fell underneath a dozen of them. His face quickly turned into a mask of blood as they bit and ripped at his eyes, nose, and mouth. In his last fading moments of life, he pulled out the pin of a grenade and blew himself and all of his remaining grenades sky high. The force of the explosion shook the ground and knocked me off balance. My ears rang as I tried to back up, but found the fence at my back. The enemy swarmed us in human wave attacks that quickly overwhelmed our positions. I fired as fast as I could, shooting into the ground at the head or chest of anything that moved outside my group. I know that I personally killed at least 20, seeing their heads explode from the impact through my scope, the attached flashlight giving everything an eerie, overly bright LED glow. I stopped to reload a fresh magazine, breathing hard. As I inhaled, I could smell the blood all around us, a rusty metallic odor that mixed with the scent of death and crap in the camp, to create the most foul mixture. I wanted to vomit from the cloying mix, an odor that hung so heavy in the air that I swore I could actually taste it. But I sucked my saliva down, trying to focus on the battle around me. Things started to go wrong quickly. We had lost at least four men that I had seen, yet the waves of attack kept coming. I looked to my side to see Samuel sweating heavily, his eyes wide and wild. A huge grin on his face as he shot as fast as the semi-automatic weapon would allow, pulling the trigger violently over and over until the magazine ran dry. I heard the slight click when he tried to keep shooting the last time and realized that the chamber was empty. I looked forward and saw a potential path to a nearby barracks. Samuel! I screamed as loudly as I could. He looked over at me and I pointed to the barracks. We can get to that building if we stick together and shoot. Then we can try to pick them off one by one as they come in the door. He needed no more urging than that. He turned to my father and Earl Arkovich as they stood behind us a few feet apart, shooting and throwing grenades. I heard another explosion from nearby and then Samuel started bellowing, his voice deep carrying across the whole camp. James! He screamed to my father, Earl, we're going to try to make it to that building. He gesticulated wildly with his gun, pointing it at the building for emphasis. They nodded and we started running as one. Hands tried to grab at my clothes as the bleeding kids closed in around us. We had made it most of the way to the door by this point, and the way ahead had still looked clearer. We opened fire on anything close that moved and my father and Earl each threw a grenade at a large mass that staggered and writhed towards us. With a satisfying explosion, I saw the heads of one after another fly off their bodies. But we were outnumbered and maybe 100 to 1, and no matter how fast we shot or how many grenades we threw, they kept closing in around us. I vowed to keep a grenade for myself in case I found myself surrounded and alone, I would not let myself be eaten alive, my skin ripped off or my eyes bitten out. I would blow myself up if it came to that and take as many of these abominations with me when I went. But we reached the door to the barracks, Samuel barreling into it without stopping, his massive frame splintering the rickety wood into a thousand small pieces that flew into the barracks. I sprinted in behind him and then my father and Earl their feet pounding heavily on the bare dirt ground. I found myself in a pitch-dark room, the only light coming from the flashlights attached to our guns. The room looked much larger on the inside than it did on the outside, and the light didn't even reach the far wall. We had no time to stop and clear the area, however, as the first enemies had already reached the threshold. My plan worked well, we all opened fire, piling bodies up at the door as fast as we could. After a couple dozen had fallen, lanes sprawled on the ground in their black and white striped uniforms, the rest piled up, pushing and trying to get through. Pools of red spread around the bodies of those we had shot, and those behind had slowed enough to the point where we could easily pick them off one by one. It's just like the Spartans in the Battle of Thermopylae, Samuel said, he looked over at me, they can't easily get through because of the narrow entrance so it allows us to ambush and kill them in small groups rather than taking on the whole mass of them, kid I think you saved our lives, I smiled over at him, by this point so many bodies blocked the doorway that the ones behind couldn't possibly get through, the thin twisted bodies piled up three or four high all the way from directly inside the door of the barracks to 10 feet beyond it. Of course, this also meant that we couldn't easily get out, and soon, that became a problem. We checked the rest of the barracks for any signs of movement, traps, or creatures. It looked totally clear. In the back half of the barracks lay bunk after bunk, all made of cheap plywood. A single bunk had three levels, and a person could slide into each and lay down. The space would not allow someone to raise their head, however. They would have to shimmy back out. The space above the first and second bed looked to be only about 18 inches tall. The person on top had no such issue since the top level was open. Behind these hundreds of bunks, I kept seeing shadows move. I cleared the area as fast as I could, but with only the flashlight and the gun for light, it still took a few minutes. And I gaped at how many beds lay here. They must have crammed all the kids together like sardines. Each bunk only had a space of an inch or two to the next. And I couldn't have even slept on such a narrow wooden platform. Unless I slept on my side. I saw no pillows, no blankets, and no sheets anywhere. I returned to my father and Earl, sighing. Samuel walked through the inside of the barracks. Checking the walls for any holes or secret doors or anything else that could surprise us. He found nothing and then we were four again, standing in front of the pile of bodies. My father brought out some peanut butter crackers from his jacket, passing around to sealed a sealed, snack sized packet to each of us. I realized just how hungry I was when my hands had wrapped around it. Ripping it open, I started eating the peanut butters quickly. Earl Arkovitch had bottles of water that he had secured in a small pack, and we each got one, though to my disappointment I saw they were these small half-bottles. I knew that I would finish that in a single swallow. "'We need a plan,' Samuel said, a thousand-yard stare in his eyes as he stared beyond the front wall of the barracks into something that only he could see in his mind. "'Yeah,' my father said. "'This is a nightmare.' We've already lost four men. Come on, James, Earl said to my father. We don't know for sure that all four have died. It's possible some got away. I saw those possessed or undead kids or whatever they are rip off one of their faces and eat it. I whispered. My voice carried in the darkness. I saw them eat his eyes. Yes, yes, it's very sad. Earl said in a calm, flat voice. But... Our plan needs to be that a couple men should cover the door while Earl brings out the red mirror. The other can help him in whatever way he needs. We need to evacuate as soon as possible, my father said. Earl's eyes looked like they might bug out of his head. We haven't even found my son's body yet, he said. His voice rising in anger and indignation. How can you possibly want to leave? That is utter cowardice. No. Samuel said, ripping his eyes away from that unknown point in the distance and looking straight at our high priest. No, he's right. We need to leave, the sooner the better. Earl looked around amazed, as if he had expected to see hidden cameras in the room. And then he stood up as tall as he could, whacked his right fist on his chest and grinned. That grin did not look like his normal one. It made him look insane and unhinged. At that moment, I wondered how much his son's death had really affected him. I felt sure that his madness would lead us all to our doom, if we allowed it. We all sat in silence staring at each other for a moment when somebody grabbed my father from behind. It was so black that I hadn't noticed it approaching in the shadows behind him, as my attention had been focused on the high priest. But when my father had started shrieking and calling for help, We all raised our guns. One of the black spider creatures had gotten in somehow. This one looked much smaller than the one that I had seen kill Alaric Arkovich. It was no taller than a man, but it had the same dozen skittering legs, the same huge mandibles extending from its face, constantly tasting the air as they opened and closed in rapid succession. It used these mandibles sharp and long and curving to grab my father by his leg and drag him quickly away. The speed at which these small ones skittered was eerie. I instantly raised my gun to try to shoot, but it moved so fast that I had barely no time. I fired a single shot which went high, and then the spider had taken my father down a hidden tunnel in the back of the barracks, disappearing from view. No! I screamed. We have to go get him. The other two men still looked somewhat shocked. Earl's eyes had gone wide, while Samuel had shifted from leg to leg uncomfortably, running his huge hand over his shaved head repeatedly. Sweat poured down his face into my horror. I saw that he looked scared. The same man who had been a soldier and mercenary in countless war zones. He was scared. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Samuel said. Now we can't leave. God dang it. We should have left immediately as soon as we had blocked the door. This place is a death trap. He shot an angry glance at Earl Arkovich. Samuel looked like he wanted to strangle the man. Earl didn't even seem to notice. His eyes had glazed over and he seemed to stare at nothing. Let's do this, Samuel said, grabbing Earl by the shoulder and pulling him forward. We all started running. The hole in the ground didn't even look large enough for the spider to have gone through, though I assumed it could squeeze and morph its body into tight spaces, just like many insects on Earth. I wasn't surprised that nobody had seen the trapdoor. Dirt and filth absolutely covered every square inch of the floor of the barracks, and the seams of the wooden door fit perfectly into the rest of the floor. Underneath all that debris, nobody would have seen the seams anyway, even if we had far more light. The tunnel had been carved right out of the packed dirt. A man could walk through it if he crouched. Samuel might have trouble since he was extremely tall, but Earl and I wouldn't have much issue. I went first and started sprinting as fast as I could, hoping to catch up with my father. I heard the other two drop down in the dirt behind with a dull thud and the pounding of their steps. I didn't look back, but only focused on navigating the winding dirt tunnel. It seemed to go on forever. After about ten minutes of running, crouched down and carrying my gun and gear I was tired. But I kept pushing myself, remembering the screaming face of my father. I kept hoping it wasn't too late. After fifteen minutes of running, the tunnel opened up into a cavern filled with rocks. I could stand up straight again. The ceiling extended 20 feet above me with filthy drops of water dripping down on my head and making the rocky floor slippery. I saw remnants of what looked like spiderwebs sticking to the walls, wispy and falling apart as if ancient. A few seconds later, Earl and Samuel emerged behind me. With the opening of the tunnel, we could walk side by side. If we had to start shooting, then moving in a line didn't seem wise. The cavern continued to open up, until my flashlight no longer illuminated the ceiling far above me. The floor stretched hundreds of feet to my left and right, with sharp, rocky projections standing straight up. Water continued to drip down the walls and fall from the ceiling, and we had to slow our pace so as to not slip on the slick and wet ground. I saw pieces of webbing sticking to the cliff-like walls, and these looked much fresher, most were just individual strands hanging down, as thick as an arm and stretching dozens of feet long. I knew what had made those, and I dreaded having to meet them again. Up ahead, I heard shrieking and cries for help. I ran forward, seeing the silhouette of my father suspended in the air a couple of hundred feet away, held in place by the thick strands of sticky web hanging down from each crevice in the wall. It didn't form a traditional spider web but rather just many interlaced strands hanging down dozens of feet. I saw lifeless bodies further ahead, totally wrapped from head to foot in the white strands. God, help me! My father cried down to us. Where are they? Samuel yelled over to him. My father shook his head violently. I don't know, I don't know, just please help me! I looked up at him, realizing how difficult it would be to get him down. He hung over a dozen feet in the air, suspended with his arms out in a tee, reminding me of statues of Jesus on the crucifix. Samuel pulled it gingerly on a thick strand of spider webbing that hung down in front of my father. Satisfied that it would hold his weight, he began shimmying up, wrapping his thick legs and arms around the strand until he was nearly face to face with my father. He pulled out a huge knife and began to cut the strands holding him in place. At that moment, I heard the skittering of hundreds of legs. Looking behind me, I saw Earl Arkovich crouched over a dark silhouette, wrapped in many layers of webbing. He began to cry and scream. It's Alaric! It's Alaric! My son! My only son! He screamed, falling on his knees and hugging the body. He threw his gun to the side, weeping. I could see his mind had finally snapped. Samuel began to throw the last of his grenades at the dozens of approaching spider monsters. The first one blew the front three apart in a cataclysmic blast, sending legs and chitinous shells flying in all directions. I knew that we had to get to the red mirror and leave immediately. I ran over to Earl Arkovich, reaching into his robes. He didn't even seem to notice that I was there as I took the mirror from him. He still lay on the ground, kissing and hugging his son. Samuel was in the front and quickly became overwhelmed. Dozens of spiders poured in through every opening in the cave. As my father ran over to me and I drew the mirror up to my face, activating the silver ruins, I saw Samuel pull the pin on his final grenade, holding it to his chest as the mandibles of the giant creatures bit into his chest and neck. Spurts of red went out in all directions. As we were transported back to the door at Hollowhead Cave, I saw the silhouette of Samuel, grating wildly as flames burst from his body and took the lives of a dozen of the spider creatures with them. Miriope ran over to us, checking us for injuries. I kept screaming over and over, They're all dead! God, they're all dead! And then I blacked out for a second time. In my dreams, I kept seeing Earl hugging his son's body, and the grin of Samuel as he died, fighting and taking his enemies with him. I woke up in my bed, covered in sweat with enough nightmares to last me a lifetime. So in the end, Earl Arkovich got his desire. He ended up finding his son's body, and they may rest together forever, until some abomination from that world eats them. I suppose. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you are in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? The Podcast Show London will bring together thousands of podcast creators under one roof on the 22nd and 23rd of May. Also featuring major industry players, global brands, and some of the most iconic voices in podcasting. Plus, creator meetups, networking, and an evening festival of unmissable live shows. Passes from £89. Book yours now at thepodcastshowlondon.com.